Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. I'm Brad Warner. I'm your host. I'm the author of Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, uh, Don't Be a Jerk, It Came from Beyond Zen, and a whole bunch of other books about Zen. And this podcast is offered for free, but uh, I do make most of my money from your kind donations. So if you want to donate to me, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find my PayPal and Patreon links, and you can make a donation that way, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your support. Okay, I have been on tour in Europe, and in fact, as I record this, I am still in Europe. I'm in Paris, and I've uh, been doing talks and things here and there, and I gave a series of talks at a retreat center in Germany called Benedictushof about the koan Hyakujo's fox, and I'm going to present those lectures basically just as I recorded them with very few edits, and I hope you enjoy it. This is a very interesting koan, and we had some interesting discussions, so... Let's take a listen. So hello and welcome. And as I said at the beginning, I'm kind of, sometimes I feel like the purpose of my talk is just to make everybody more comfortable to talk to me. So, but I wanted to try to talk about uh, an old Zen story, a koan that I like. And I've done, I don't know if I've talked about this one at Benedictus Hof before. I've tried to talk about this koan before, and I've written about it in books and things. But I, I just felt like I wanted to try again. <laughs> so, and some of you may have heard this story. It's uh, Hyakujo's Fox is usually the title of it. And Hyakujo is an ancient Zen master. And there's a fox in the story. And I want to read to you the version that I first heard. This comes from a book called Buddha is the Center of Gravity, which was one of the first books about Zen that I ever read. So when I was 18 years old or something, when I first started doing this, and I'm older than I look, people always guess my age wrong. So this was almost 40 years ago, almost, almost 40 years, but not quite, that I first read this. And ever since then, I just uh, liked it, and I'm just going to read it to you. Whenever Hyakujo Osho, that's the teacher, preached a sermon, an old stranger was there, always following the Zen monks and listening to the preaching. When the Zen monks withdrew, so did the old man. It happened that he did not, oh, sorry, it happened one day that he did not withdraw, The master at last said, Who is this standing in front of me? The old man replied, Well, I am not a human being. In the past days of Kasho Buddha, who was a Buddha who lived about two million years before Shakyamuni was born, I was the head of the monastery on this mountain. One of my students asked me, I know well that all beings are subject to the doctrine of cause and effect. I also know that a Zen master is free from every doctrine. Both of them are doctrines of Buddhism. Now I want to ask you if a Zen master is subject to the doctrine of cause and effect or not. I replied, not subject to the doctrine of cause and effect. Since then, I have lived 500 lives as a wild fox. 
Now, Master, will you please put another word in place of mine and deliver me from the bondage of being a wild fox? And finally he asked, is a Zen master subject to the doctrine of cause and effect or not? The master said, the doctrine working of cause and effect is as clear as noonday. I, this, this version, I think that's actually a mistake, uh, the way it's written, but uh, it's the way I memorized it for many years, so, uh, so I always hear it that way, and when I see somebody say it a different way, I think, oh no, <laughs> the doctrine working of cause and effect is as clear as noonday. That's not good English grammar, but it's, it's what's written. The old man, at these words, was completely enlightened. He made a bow and said, I was already free from the bondage of being a wild fox body and have been living at the back of this mountain. I am sorry to trouble you, but would you please perform my funeral according to the regular ceremony of a dead monk? The master instructed the head monk to tell everyone that after the meal, a funeral rite for a monk would be performed. The monks said to each other, we are all well, no one is in the infirmary, what's going on? When evening came, the master entered the sermon hall and explained uh, to the monks what had happened. He told them the story. Obaku, who's one of his students, immediately asked, and well, Obaku is also a famous Zen teacher, but at this point in the story, he's uh, the student of Hyakujo, but later on he becomes a very famous teacher on his own. So Obaku immediately said, the ancient happened to answer wrongly in one word and was changed into the body of a wild fox for 500 lives. If time after time he had given no wrong answers, what would he have been? The master said, come forward and I will practice what is not wrong. Obaku thereupon came forward and gave his palm to the master's palm. Uh, so they're doing this in this version, but in, in most versions, the Obaku is slapping his teacher. Um, the master clapped his own hands and laughed. He said, I thought Bodhidharma's beard is red, but you just said the man with the red beard is Bodhidharma. So that's the story. And it's a very strange story. Uh, and when I first heard that story, it just seemed like just a really weird old story. And I've lived with it for 38 years or something like that. And each time I go back to the story, I think I can kind of understand it a little better and I start to understand why this story has been around so long. But when I first heard it, I, I didn't understand why this old story would be important. It just seems like a weird old story about a, a fox. Uh, but it's... Um, it's talking about something important, so I'd like to see if I can say a little bit about what I think it's talking about. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Zen is the study of the self. That's one of the ways a lot of people put it. <clears throat> Dogen, who is the founder of this tradition, the tradition that I was ordained in, said, uh, said that. And he said, to study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Uh, so this idea of Zen being the study of the self is an interesting one. 
And recently I started to notice when looking at some of Dogen's writings in Japanese that he uses two different words. Actually, he uses more than two, but let's just, I'll just make it two for the sake of this. Two different words, two different ideas that when they're translated into English are almost always translated as self. I, I didn't check, uh, I know Gabriela Linnebach did a, a nice German translation of Chobo Genzo, which is one of Dogen's, which probably the most famous Dogen pieces of writing. It's this huge book in four volumes. Uh, I'm not sure what, uh, what word she uses, but it's probably similar, a similar problem because there's, there's these two Japanese concepts which, when you translate them into English, both, uh, both come out as self, but they're a little bit different. Uh, and they are jiko. Jiko is the one, and the other one is ware. And uh, jiko, when it's used in contemporary Japanese, is just the same as the English word self. Yeah. It just it has no other other meaning, no special meaning. But when Dogen uses the word jiko, uh, he is almost always referring to a kind of transcendent self, which is the self of the whole universe. Uh, I was just reading a book, well, actually the book that I mentioned where I first heard this koan. It's called Buddha is the Center of Gravity. And the teacher who wrote that book or who spoke the lectures that became that book would call this self the center of gravity. That's his kind of unique uh, way of talking about it. But this, there's this jiko self, and then the other word that Dogen uses for self is ware. And ware is not, it would be spelled w-a-r-e, ware. Uh, it, it, uh, it's not a word that they use commonly in Japanese anymore except in plural. So you say ware ware. Wariwari is usually translated into English as we. Wariwari. And the, uh, the, the place where you often hear it is Wariwari Nihonjin, we Japanese. Uh, and I lived in Japan for 11 years, and I often would get immediately annoyed when I heard Wariwari Nihonjin, because it usually was followed by something about why we Japanese are better than everybody else. <laughs> so, so that's where I most, most heard that Wariwari uh, word. But in older Japanese, it was another way of saying self, but it was more like saying I or me. So ware is, is me, and jiko is more like self. And when Dogen uses the word ware, he's talking about the, the, small, the, the small self, the, the individual self, the self that we, most of us, I think, take for granted. We assume that this self exists and this is the real the real person and in terms of this koan one of the ways of understanding it is that there are there are two things being talked about uh, they're talking about both kinds of self in this koan and the jiko self is free from everything, free from all doctrines, free from any sort of um, cause and effect. But the ware self is cause and effect.
And so what we're aiming at in this practice is to try to find a kind of balance between both of these, because both of these are self. And what I've been <clears throat> noticing when I look at different traditions that try to address this problem. Um, okay, <clears throat> let me see how I can put this. Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me see if I can put this in a simple way, or if I can, or if I can't, I'll just fail. Um, Mostly we don't notice this jiko self, this big self. Most people, I think, are <clears throat> unaware that it even exists, that we have, that, that what we call self, that what, what we think of as belonging, this unique something that we come from and we are looking out at the rest of the world, uh, we think that this is me that this is this limited me-something that exists in this body and it was born on March 5th, 1964, if you're me, you know. It was born on some day, it lives, it, uh, it, it comes to Germany, it gives a talk, you know, it has all these sort of idiosyncrasies, it likes Godzilla movies, it, uh, you know, whatever. It wears a funny t-shirt with the, this is Gamera, by the way, this is not Godzilla, but... Um, but I found out that in Germany, they also called this character Godzilla back in the 60s. So just making everything confusing. But it's a different, a different monster entirely, made from a different studio and everything. So. Um, but somehow when they made, brought the movies to Germany, they called them Godzilla movies. Anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. <laughs> but now you learned something. So you can't say you never learned anything from one of my talks. You, you learned something. This, this uh, bigger self is something that we don't uh, usually know exists. And so when spiritual traditions like Zen uh, develop, usually one of the things that happens is people are very surprised to hear this idea that there is a bigger sort of self. Uh, and that this self, if you want to put it in theological terms, is can be identified even with God, you know, which is a very... Um, some people would even say it's the source of God. It's beyond God. God is even sub, you know, subservient to this bigger self. And people don't realize that, and they become very excited about it, and they want to discover that. Uh, there's, a, there's a very good book that just came out um, last year, or maybe this year, called Discovering the True Self, and it's a collection of... <coughs> A collection of uh, stuff by uh, Joshu, uh, not Joshu, like, um, uh, Kodo Sawaki, who is the source of the quote that we put on the um, schedules. Did we put that quote on the schedules? Kodo Sawaki. So he talks about discovering the true self. And that's um, often how it's presented, and that's not wrong to present it that way. It's presented as, as if uh, we, we need to discover uh, the true self, which is beyond. And what often happens in some traditions is a, a kind of um, people start ignoring that other sort of self. And 
in, in a sense, that's what this uh, koan is about, but it took me a very long time um, to, to figure that out. This true self is kind of transcends subject and object. So that's one of the, one of the ways of, of understanding it that um, I think one often finds if you read books about spirituality and things that you're trying to transcend subject and object. So we tend to see the world as, as a bunch of objects that are related to the subject, which is me. And that's the ware self is the subject that relates to the world as objects. But the jiko self has no subject and object. So that's um, trying to balance those, those two sides, I think, is, uh, is a significant thing. What else can I say? <laughs> I wrote a lot of notes, but I always, when I, whenever I write a lot of notes, I find that I don't uh, like my notes, <laughs> and I don't want to say them. I go, what is this guy talking about? I don't want to talk about what he wants to talk about. But I'll, I'll do a few, of more, a few more of my notes. Um, this Jiko self is the source of, of the smaller self. And so they are intimately related, and one can also say that they're, they're the same thing. But working with this, this practice for many years, uh, it, um, it starts to become clearer to me what it's about and how different that is from what I thought it was about when I started. And when I started doing this practice all those years ago, uh, I think what I wanted was to escape this world because I was kind of, um, I kind of realized the, the first noble truth of Buddhism, all life is suffering, you know. And I assume most people have heard that version. My teacher didn't like the, uh, the version that says all life is suffering, but it's the sort of standard way of understanding. And there is some, some truth to it. All life is unsatisfactory experience. And so coming to understand that all life was a kind of suffering, I thought, well, the thing I want to do is escape from this life. And I looked for uh, religions as maybe a way to do that, especially the, the more mystical traditions that promised a, a kind of an experience of enlightenment or awakening that would transcend this world and, and maybe um, shoot me off in a rocket ship out of this world or something like that. But I ended up encountering Zen. Uh, which is the worst kind of tradition to encounter if you want to have that sort of experience. But I could see that it was true, and I feel like it, it's lucky that I, that I found the Zen, the Zen path, because the Zen is, is, Zen is a very grounded path. 
but it also acknowledges that there's something more. So it's, I think, a, a very good sort of balance because you have this sort of normal world which doesn't even acknowledge that there is something uh, beyond our sort of day-to-day -day experience. And then you have Zen which says, no, your day-to-day -day experience is the thing that is beyond your day-to-day -day experience. Uh, you don't notice, uh, we, we spend our lives not noticing that we are already having this uh, transcendental experience of, of emptiness in our, in our own uh, daily lives and we kind of chase after it as if it's something else, as if it's something over there that's an object. And sometimes the question becomes, well, how, you know, how, to, um, how to behave in this world? And this is a subject that I've been interested in and I tried to write a book about. I tried to write a book about why this philosophy, which is sometimes classified under the heading of non-dualism, which is a, a philosophy that says everything is one, that everything is this big mind. Dogen would say mind is fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. Uh, was one way. Let me give you the whole quote. Zen is, or sorry, mind is fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, he would say that all of these are mind. And why would a philosophy that uh, says everything is mind also be coupled with this strong sense of ethics? Because one of the other very important aspects of the Buddhist path is ethics, the precepts. I never remember all of them off the top of my head, but when you, uh, when you take a ceremony called Jukai, you agree to live your life according to ten, the ten grave precepts, which are not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to misuse sexuality, uh, not to be uh, greedy and covetous. Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> there's a button. There's, uh, there's four more, <laughs> but I can't, I can't get out of my head. But basically... I, I tried to sum it all up in a, a, the title of a book I wrote a few years ago, which was Don't Be a Jerk. So don't do... Um, d there's a, a chapter of Dogen's uh, writings, which is called Shoaku Makusa, which means don't enact wrong. Don't, make, don't bring wrong into the world. It's kind of a way of saying it. Um, and we want to try to, to find that. And one of the other ways I've seen this put is that Zen is not about saints and sinners, but sometimes it's good to imitate the behavior of saints. <laughs> and uh, I like that way of putting it very much. And so I think one of the things we can do to try to find this this uh, true self is to imitate the ways of saints. Uh, maybe we don't consider ourselves a saint. Uh, that's a very lofty position. But we try to imitate what saints do and try to act in that way. 
and take responsibility for ourselves and for the, for the lives we live. So that uses up all the things I wrote down in my notebook <laughs> of things I wanted to say. And uh, I, I'm going to try to continue over the next few days of, of getting deeper into this uh, koan story because I think it's a very interesting story. But I'd like to see if anybody has a question or a comment or maybe something so I can find out if what I'm saying. Sometimes I need the echo from the audience to see if I'm just saying boring things about Buddhism and nobody cares <laughs> or, or if this means anything. But it doesn't, you don't have to ask me about uh, what I just talked about. It could be anything. Yeah, you said that sometimes when you go on a uh, spiritual path and then people will try to focus more on the Jiko side, yeah. forget about the Wara side or the Waga side. Yeah. Um, isn't it that you, isn't it almost fairly easy because when you say the Jiko self is like this big one experience, then the Wara self doesn't have I mean, it's not even possible for the what itself to experience that one thing because that would be what it something can't, experiencing. Yeah. yeah, can't experience it as an object. Right, yeah. and then isn't it... Um, I feel sometimes that the search goes forward mm -hmm. and trying to see, oh yeah, how can I drop this? How can I find the one thing? But then when you, uh, when you think about what it not being able to find oneness at all, then it's just, what, what's there to do? It's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of in a bind, yeah. Because you can't, the, the sort of oneness that we're talking about can't be experienced as an object. One way that, um, <clears throat> that my teacher said at one time to a group is, you can't notice your own enlightenment. I remember him saying this, and I, this was my teacher in Japan, and I just started started listening to him and I thought well if I can't notice my own enlightenment what's the point <laughs> you know why not? might as well just give up um, <clears throat> and that's true because you can't you can't have it as an object um, and there's a tendency it, it, it will always become an object one of the one of the tendencies on this path as you keep going with it is that we tend to People will have an experience, and you'll, you'll have a so-called enlightenment experience, and it can be a wonderful transcendent moment that a lot of people who practice this will, will have. Um, and the problem is, immediately, the, the wada self, the smaller self, tries to grasp it as an object and, and make it into an object. And sometimes you can do this very successfully. It's, it's an interesting aspect of the personal self, the ego self, is that this kind of smaller self can make anything into something to, to make itself seem better. So even, even noticing that it doesn't exist is something that it tries to grab onto and go, oh, look, I don't exist. <laughs> and then become like, look, I'm Mr. I don't exist. Um, so you have to kind of avoid that. Um, s slipping too far into the Jiko self, though, 
um, is um, I, I feel it's a little bit off balance too, uh, and and um, there's something Cobencino said, and Cobencino was my first teacher's teacher, and he he has this lovely quote that I actually used at Benedictushof once one year as my sort of main device to talk about whatever I wanted to talk about that year, but now I have it. I don't have it memorized. Um, but it was something like, uh, he talks about it in a metaphor of like going to the source of a river. And if you go to the source of a river, there's this very ancient um, smell, I think is what he says. And, and it's just, a, it's not a river anymore. It's just a damp patch, damp patch in the ground. Uh, but then he says, but you can't stay there. And I think that's kind of the, uh, the, the, the thing I took most from that, uh, that quote and why I like it so much is you can't stay there. Um, you can't stay there, but if you notice that it's there and accept that it's there, it can make life uh, much more uh, meaningful and bigger, I think. And so that's the, uh, that's the kind of magic of it. Even though, even though it's not um, it's not you. My, my first teacher had a phrase, he said, it's more you than you could ever be. So it's, it's, like, it's like something that is, it is um, intimately connected with who you are, even though you can't stand outside of it and look at it as an object. I don't know if I just said a bunch of weird words <laughs> and made no sense, but that's, yeah, that's sort of an answer or one answer. One way of answering that question. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming in your last sentence uh, down to Essex. So ethics. Oh, ethics, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is connected to the self and the, the ich. Yeah, the, yeah. I think the German word ich is, uh, I, I find it's a little bit different than ego. Yeah, yeah. It's a good translation of this other relative aspect. Yeah, yeah. So when I read the timetable, I really was surprised you called it Kulusawaki, which I really was uh, fancy of as long as I didn't know that he seemed to be very uh, much engaged in the slaughtering of the Second World War. Yeah. And uh, I don't know whether this is really true, but in Germany we are very sensitive about this. Yeah. And my last two years I was even more sensitive because I, I is a Graf Durkheim. Mm -hmm. May have heard Karl Fried Graf Durkheim. I've heard the name, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, much. He he was a German. He was a right hand of Ribbentrop. And um, made the propaganda of the Nazis uh, in Japan. Mm, mm. And then he got uh, imprisoned there and uh, turned around and made enlightenment. Oh, interesting. So, uh, how can I put my question? Because it's not my point to. Um, to judge over people who uh, were 
verstrickt. Involved in murders. Yeah. Yeah. When when I would have been born forty years earlier, I yeah. probably would have been there myself. Yeah, yeah. But the point is, um, how can we be our true self uh, uh, on the way of discovering it? after such a long time like Kulosowaki or Graf Dürkheim and not confessing I did something wrong. Mm. Well, okay, there's a, there's, a, there's a few... Um, I mean, it's a very good question. Uh, one thing I... I um, one thing about Kodo Sawaki is his... There's a book that came out by Brian Victoria called Zen at War. Uh, which had a lot of quotes from Kodo Sawaki in which Brian Victoria was... He, he was saying something that was true, which is that in the Second World War, there were a number of Japanese Buddhist Zen people who were, um, I don't know if you'd say doing propaganda, but kind of on the, the side of the Japanese militarism and, and such like, and so were, and were kind of co-opted into uh, supporting the, the war effort during the Second World War. Um, the, the problem with, uh, with uh, Brian Victoria's book when it comes to Kodo Sawaki is, and I, I actually, because Kodo Sawaki was the teacher of my, my teacher, Kuro Nishijima, I actually looked into this in some detail. And there's a, um, there's a guy, you, you might have heard of him, some people here might have heard of him, uh, Muho, uh, who is, uh, the, was the abbot of Antaiji. Uh, which was uh, Kodo Sawaki's temple in Japan, but he's a German guy. Uh, I don't know what his, uh, his birth name is, Muho's. Do you know Muho's real name? Anyway, it doesn't he's matter. Known as Abu. Yeah, he's, but he's, he's a German guy and he he's, uh, still lives in Japan. Well, he examined. Uh, Brian Victoria doesn't really give the trace, the quotes that he uses from Kodo Sawaki, but, but because Muho was kind of obsessed with it, he found them. And he presents them. There's a place online he presents them. And if you read, because uh, I can read Japanese, and if you read the actual Japanese side by side with the way Brian Victoria translated it, Victoria mistranslates Kodo Sawaki. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to say uh, Kodo Sawaki was... Um, he, he's a very, he was a very complicated man, but Brian Victoria tried to make him seem much more violent and much more supportive of the Second World War than he really was. He, he, was, more, he was more in the, in the sense of trying to be uh, kind of neutral. And, uh, and, but he was not uh, necessarily a pacifist. So you can say that about Sawaki. Um, but to make him into a man who supported Japanese imperialism during the Second World War is not right. He, he didn't. He didn't. Not personally, but he wasn't. He he also wasn't um, campaigning against it either. So it was kind of um, more more of a neutral stance. But still, um, the question is what you know what happens in 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 our lives, and I don't know. Um, because as you, as you rightly say, 
you can step aside from that time and go, oh, those people were terrible, but if you're actually in the situation, I don't know how I would react and what I would do. Um, I think there's a difference between, um, e even, even if, even if uh, my country, you know, if even the United States goes to war and I am against the war, if the soldiers are coming into my town, I would probably fight to protect my town, even if I don't agree with, you know, why why they came there in the first place, you know, why the war started in the first place. So it's a very difficult sort of uh, position. Um, I don't know uh, how... Um, we've all done things that are uh, unethical. I think everybody has. Uh, some people do worse uh, unethical things than others. And the, one of the precepts, this is a difficult one for me, uh, is, what's the standard version of it? The way I learned it is no speaking of past mistakes. Uh, and it's usually phrased in a way that's a little bit easier um, for most people to accept. And I can't remember what the normal phrase of it was. But the way I learned it was no speaking of past mistakes, or no dwelling, no dwelling on past mistakes. Speaking of, I think I said that wrong. So no dwelling on past mistakes. So you have to let go of your, of your past mistakes and just do the proper thing now, because you can only act in this moment. Um, in certain cases, that may, doing the proper thing in this moment means you have to acknowledge what you did in the past and and I you know I think that's always the best thing to do but um, at the same time what you did in the past is uh, my teacher would say carved into the universe uh, this is why he would say Nishijima Roshi would always say that acting ethically now is is very significant because everything you do is carved into the universe this was the phrase he used to describe it. And so because everything you've done is, is uh, unalterable, that's why it's important to do the right thing in this moment. And what you, what you do about the past is, the only thing you can do about the past is try to make up for the mistakes that you've made in the past. But, but dwelling on it and sort of living in the past is, um, doesn't help, you know, ultimately. And you have to kind of um, let it go in, in, a, in a way. I don't know if that's a good answer to the question. But <laughs> it's my answer. Are you free to choose 
when you leave it and mm. go back? Or is it something which is just coming and you have to accept it? I think it's more the second. I think it's more something that just comes and you, and you accept it. Um, this, uh, there are lots of things that happen uh, when practicing Zen and when pursuing this kind of path. And you know, one of the things that can happen, which as I just mentioned, is that kind of experience, the, the kind of uh, beautiful experience of Kensho or Satori or these kind of experiences that, that one can have sometimes. And I was reading a, a book by a, an Advaita Vedanta teacher named Ramesh Balsakar, he's an Indian guy. And he uses a phrase which I really liked. He calls it free samples from God. <laughs> like free samples, you know, like at the, at the supermarket they might give you the, maybe they don't do it lately because of the problems, but maybe they'll come back and do these, you know, here's the, you know, the cookie or whatever, the cake, they give the free samples. So it's like a free sample. So it seems to come, at least it's been my experience, there's, there's nothing that I know of that I've ever even heard of that you can do to make it happen. This is the, the problem I have with a lot of people who are very interested in, in psychedelic drugs and things like that because uh, sometimes they imagine they can make that experience happen by having some mushrooms or LSD or, or DMT or whatever uh, and then make this experience happen. But And those, those, those drugs and those substances can sometimes give you a a very profound sort of experience, but you always kind of come back uh, down to this experience, and, and it's a little bit of a dangerous way, or maybe it's more than just a little bit, maybe it's just a dangerous way to do it, because sometimes uh, it, it works out very badly. Um, and the thing I think about is the fact that any time I've had any of these sort of experiences, even, you know, I've I did have the drugs in my, in my past, I've, I've tried them, uh, and, and through meditation more recently, is that the experience always kind of brings me out of this sort of day-to-day -day world and shows me something bigger. It's like, it's like you know, every metaphor is wrong, but it's, it's almost like being suddenly lifted up to a very big height and suddenly you, you see everything from a totally different perspective. You go, oh my gosh, everything is, you know, I, I thought it was just this little thing, and now I can see the whole, you know, I can see for, for a much bigger distance, and I can get a, a bigger idea of, of what's, uh, what's really going on. But then you dropped back again. Um, and the thing I started thinking about after having experiences like this is, why, is it, why am I always dropped back again? And what I decided, or my you know, tentative conclusion, or my, you know, my uh, theory, is that maybe this is more important than that. You know, maybe that bigger perspective is something that needs to be kind of left to its own, and I just accept that I'm not always going to be in that, in that bigger perspective, but I'm usually going to be coming back here, and maybe the reason is because this is very important. I don't know why this is very important. Sometimes I look at the world and I go, why is this important? But, um, 
But then I also think, well, maybe on a bigger scale, somebody's got to take care of this place. You know, maybe God can be up there, you know, kind of uh, overseeing it all. But, but somebody has to, you know, I, I think about like uh, the person who's, uh, whose job it is to, to stay in the basement and make sure the, the hot water heater doesn't blow up, you know. So that's, maybe that's my job. And, and maybe I, I don't like that job very much, but I'm, you know, but somebody has to do that job or else it all goes crazy. So, so maybe our, our role is to kind of try to keep, you know, our special role, and just speaking of the, the people in this room, is to try to kind of bring some stability uh, to this place. This is why when I did the opening talk yesterday, I, I said that I think what we're doing here is, is very important, like supremely important. And I think it's, it's kind of a shame to neglect this. And I feel like most people in the world kind of are neglecting the importance of, of what we're doing here and that our practice and why it's really important for, you know, just if we think about it, we're just a few people in a room, but I think we're doing something that helps bring stability to the, to the wider world. I know I got away from your question a little bit, but, but it's something like that. Do we have to uh, chant now? Okay, I see you shuffling the papers. <laughs> and, oh, maybe I've gone on too long, okay. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Hardcore Zen Podcast. You can donate to this podcast by going to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is where I get most of my support. Even though this is offered for free, I do appreciate your support. Thank you very much and see you next time.